Welcome to another Prog Report Top 5 podcast. Really excited about this one. You know, as we like to try and do all the great prog bands, Genesis, Yes, Rush, all that stuff on the show, but we also like to try and delve a little bit outside, things that maybe I consider prog adjacent or stuff that I also like. And uh, this is a real thrill for me, one of my all-time favorite bands and a band that you've absolutely heard us talk about on the website or uh, on the podcast before, and that's Jellyfish. And um, with me is the only person I know that might be a bigger Jellyfish fan than me, and that's Mr. Mike Portnoy. So, Mike, thank you. Hey, glad to be here, man. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having yeah. me. So when I was thinking about uh, the opportunity came to have this guy on, one of the original founding members of the band on the show, uh, I was thrilled. And I said, well, first, let me get Mike and let's make that happen. And you were happy enough to do it. And, and so I'm really pleased to welcome... Keyboardist, songwriter, amazing musician, Roger Joseph Manning Jr. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to uh, chime in on this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're probably going to come off like, at least I will, like a super ridiculous fanboy. And I hope that's okay. But, you know, thinking back to when Spilt Milk was out, and I I actually had Belly Button, the first album from when that first came out. But at the time around Spilt Milk was when I was just super obsessed with it. And that was also at the same time Images and Words was out from Dream Theater. And so that was like, you two guys were my, like in my CD player. Like that was it, what was happening around 93. So it's funny because wow. I, re- the, the Spilt Milk album was my soundtrack to the Images and Words tour. I was on tour. Uh, and that's how, actually how and when I discovered Jellyfish. I was on tour with Dream Theater on the Images and Words tour. And the Galactic Cowboys were our opening band. And, and I would hang with those guys every day. And we would like totally geek out on Beatles stuff and 60s and 70s music. And they turned me on to the Spilt Milk album. I hadn't heard it. I, I, and and uh, I became obsessed with it. I mean, as soon as I heard uh, joining a fan club, I was floored. I was like, oh, my God, this is the band I've been looking for forever. I mean, it's got all the qualities of all my favorite bands thrown into this giant melting pot. So pretty much the whole Images and Words tour, I was listening to this album. That was my soundtrack for that tour of mine. Yeah. Uh, Galactic Cowboys, another great band, by wow. the way. That was a great time. What a great tour. Uh, yeah. Roger, before we get into talking about the uh, the band and all their great music, I want to know what's going on with you. Uh, you released a great uh, EP, uh, was it last year, called Glamping? Which Correct, is uh-huh. just incredible, incredible stuff. Uh, anybody likes Jellyfish, I mean, that is right right there. And I guess you're on tour right now with Beck. What, what's been going on? Uh, correct. Um, I'm actually, we just started, we're only two weeks in, um, a two-month tour, uh, where the band Spoon and Cage the Elephant and ourselves have all kind of teamed up for a you know, co-headlining situation across the country, Uh mostly U.S. dates, and um, we have different openers, different areas. Uh, Starcrawler, an L.A. band, um, has been out with us for the last five days. But, um, uh, yeah, it's a nice uh, travel break from my normal at-home, more in 
in-town studio recording life. Um, but yeah, I'm always in between the cracks trying to figure out how to get more original music out to the fans because uh, it is my first passion. And um, I'm just so blessed and thankful that uh, there is a worldwide audience um, you know, kind of tucked away out there. And, and uh, thankfully, because of the internet, I'm able to have much more interaction and communication with them than back in the day. And uh, so I want to keep the tunes coming. Cool, man. So uh, you're after the, the Beck tour, you go back to trying to, to record some new music or, or what's the plan? Well, that's certainly part, part of what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always working on other people's records and the occasional soundtrack with film composers and so forth. And then, yeah, anytime I have downtime, um, I'm finishing sculpting more songs, uh, for ideally another EP. Um, and I just kind of keep churning them out that way. And, uh, of course, part of that will be, well, what is the next kind of crowdfunding or, you know, subscription model or whatever look like for me to have the most regular interactive scenario with my fan base. Um, so I mean, I'm always open <laughs> to suggestions. <laughs> if I, if either of you've had positive experiences with what, you know, cause you, uh, both of you have your hand on so many things. So Mike, anyway, you have some ideas. Uh, uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, these days, these days, you know, most of the artists are getting their music back because the labels are, are, are all crashing themselves. So I think these days, most bands and artists are retaining their independence and getting music out themselves. I mean, the bad news is, is that you, nobody's selling anything and, and the industry's collapsing in that respect. But the good news is because of that, at least a lot of the artists are gaining their music back and the rights to it, you know, their independence. So that's, that's the good part of it. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's a trade-off here. And uh, if we just continue to surf as best we can, I think we can still continue to you know, do just fine. It's just everything looks different than when we all started out. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Well, we wish you all the luck, Ben, and any new music or whatever else going on is, uh, is just fantastic. And um, so, uh, Mike, real quick, your update, Flying Colors, Sons of Apollo, what's, uh, what's happening? Um, I'm home, pretty much home for the summer, which has been my first summer off in like 10 or 15 years. So it's been really nice. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not touring, but I am overseeing all these upcoming releases. We got the new Flying Colors studio album, which we just delivered and that's coming out in October. And then we'll be doing some special one-off shows for that. Uh, the live Sons of Apollo Blu-ray, uh, uh, that's, that's delivered and on its way, uh, next month coming out. And then we're also working on the next studio album which will be coming out early next year and uh then as you know we got morse fest coming up next month in, in tennessee where i'll be playing with flying colors and the neil morse band uh, and also i just had the metal allegiance guys over a few days ago we got a cool little side project within a side project happening with that so yeah uh, it's been nice to be home, but I'm still kind of overseeing these studio and live releases. All right. Well, there's always something, something I should say. There's always three or four albums happening whenever, whenever we talk in, in your world. So that's cool. All right. Yeah. Well, listen, let's get to this. Yeah. I'm really excited and I, I'm dying to hear some of the stories about how some of these songs were made and, uh, and just what songs you all will pick. So Roger, how it's going to work is we each pick five songs. We didn't discuss it. And then we'll just each say what our number five is and number four is and so on and go down that way and 
uh, just talk about whatever you want to say about the song and, uh, you know, anything you want to talk about it or, or tell a story or whatever. We're happy to hear it. Um, I'll let you go first with your number five if you uh, if you have one to go. Uh, sure. Uh, well, you know, let me start by saying they're all my precious children. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it was very it was very challenging to go. Well, how do I rank any of these? Obviously, I have fond memories and, and uh, feelings attached to each one of them. But um, I guess it just kind of comes down to uh, which of the five that I felt really represented our vision uh, to the best. Um, and of course, every band member would have a different opinion on that. But uh, number five for me is the song uh, Russian Hill. And um, that's mostly because uh, that was a, a colossal experiment that I feel ultimately succeeded. Um, it's although we were essentially a, you know, rock pop band, this was a song that was, uh, didn't have a rhythm section. It was all orchestral accompaniment uh, to Andy's acoustic guitar and vocal. And um, uh, I just, it's such a wonderfully moody and cinematic song. Um, and we really were trying to achieve uh, that lofty goal, um, having so many wonderful inspirations in the past from our heroes. Um, and uh, I was very proud of um, how it all came out, ultimately. Um, there were a lot of experiments that took place on that song. For example, the, the big flute solo in the middle, which is like a, a stack of uh, alto flutes, was originally supposed to be a more of a jazz harmonica solo, um, you know, hearkening back to the... Um, uh, oh, what's the uh, oh Midnight Cowboy soundtrack? Mm. Forgive me, I just woke up. And um, uh, the harmonica player—I um, won't name any names—but he just couldn't get. We, you know, we we charted out the solo and everything. He just couldn't get the vibe of what we were going for, and that happens. I, I totally get it. But then we were all scratching our heads, looking at each other, going, "Well, now what are we going to do? This was going to be the big jazz, you know, instrumental moment." And um, uh, Andy and I started singing ideas to each other uh, with, without necessarily a flute in mind, but uh, always, always with kind of Henry Mancini and 60s kind of cinema in our mind uh, for these types of things. And um, we got this melody down that we liked and we decided, wow, what if we, what if we did a very kind of sultry Burt Bacharach, um, you know, Brazil 66, almost samba um, flute solo. And, and then it ended up becoming a, you know, a jazz, jazz chordal arrangement of alto flutes um, played by John Clark, uh, who got the call. He, he had been in uh, Loggins and Messina in Kenny Loggins' solo band. Um, and he, he came in and read it down in like two takes. And we were just all so elated because uh, we were very, very happy with the result. Um, this, was, this was also one of the songs that Andy uh, much to my pleasant surprise really wanted me to kind of use my falsetto to kind of do the answer uh, melody in the chorus. I was very self-conscious about that. Um, but, uh, everybody's rooting for me and I'm, I'm happy with how it came out. And, uh, mm. and the, the, or the orchestral arrangement was again, a, a giant experiment. We knew what it had to be and I wanted to do my best to arrange it not having had too much experience under my belt, certainly not for a 22 piece orchestra. And, um, I went for it and, uh, thankfully Albie, uh, helped me 
um, kind of get rid of the rough edges on it. And, um, but at one point, uh, they were in the studio and Albie was conducting. He was the one that had the experience with that. And these strings as talented and as professional as they were, they simply weren't understanding this one passage or how we all wanted it to go. And Albie looked at me <laughs> and he said, well, you get up here and conduct it. <laughs> hmm. And I said, uh, okay. And I, I had had some conducting experience in college, but I certainly wasn't you know, a master of that at all, nor did I have that much experience. And I was nervous as heck. And I just got up there and started flapping my arm around. And it was more about how I conveyed the thought and how I articulated it. And, um, ultimately they, they grasped what we were going for, but, um, you know, it was just this wonderful kind of learning curve on the job. Uh, so I have a lot of fond mm-hmm. memories of that. And ultimately I just think it's a beautiful song and, and uh, very happy that it was part of the overall repertoire. Treeline village, oh so heavenly Cross a bridge of gold To landscapes of juniper On the Eden is love that song it's a great one yeah i love the contrast uh going into that coming out of all is forgiven all is forgiven is just like this intense heavy gnarly dirty you know feedback thing going at the end and then you just have that direct cut right into the the, the serenity of russian hills it's a great uh contrast and great sequence uh right there and i i love oh, the cinematic you, yeah. stuff that's all throughout this album like uh bye 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 with all the uh the accordion stuff, you feel like you're on a, uh, you know, through, on a boat going through Venice, Italy, or, or the beginning of Hush with all the, the orchestral, it's, it's all so cinematic. So that's one of the aspects I loved about all the tunes and all the orchestrations of, of all the songs. It's just such a great element. Uh, one of my favorite songs off that, off that album. Cool. I'm glad it made the list. So we got that one out of the way. This is good. Um, all right, Mike, yours. <laughs> Well, I'll start by saying that um, on one hand, it was really hard to narrow down five songs uh, because they're all so great. Uh, me as a fan, I love them all. But it was also easy because it was only two albums to choose from. Like Roy and I have done this with other bands. And, you know, when you have this mammoth catalog of 20 years or 30 years of music, it's, it's impossible. So luckily, in this case, we have two studio albums. So it sort of helped. And my list, um, looking at my list, I don't want to give anything away, but spoiler alert, my list definitely leans more towards Spilt Milk just because that was the album I discovered the band on. And to me, to me, Belly Button to Spilt Milk was kind of like Revolver to Sgt. Pepper or uh, The Benz to OK Computer. You know, one album (laughs) is, is like great, great, great songs. And then the next album is just a studio sonic 
experimental masterpiece. So both both albums have such great material, but for me, I lean more towards Spilt Milk because I just I really love the uh, the the studio experimentation, which goes to a whole new level with that album. So anyway, that being said, my number five choice is uh, probably a song that's very close to Roger. So I'd love to hear his story behind it, but Sabrina Pace and Plato, which to me is um, a quirky song. It's also one of the few that, that Roger, I think is, you know, really very predominant with the vocals and the lead vocals, but I love the quirkiness of it. I think it's one of those songs where, uh, like when I saw you guys for Belly Button, it, it, you guys seemed like you were coming straight up like a Sid and Marty Croft cartoon or, or t- you know, Saturday morning TV show. Well, when I listened to Sabrina Pace and Plato, it's almost like it sounds like that. It sounds like it's coming out of, you know, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters or, or H.R. Puffin stuff or something like that. I love the, the instrumentation. I love the carousel sound effects and the harpsichord and all that stuff. It just brings me back to uh, that early 70s, you know, all the records and TV shows I watched when I was a kid in the early 70s. Chesney's looking dapper in his brand new dance cap Strolling down the runway to an F With all the others watching, eating paste and play-doh He fights the urge to run and kiss the chef Well, yeah, you are. I mean, you know, this is why you're a fan. You, you, you get it. I mean, that's uh, very much our headspace and our heart space with that song. And um, I was going to talk about it later, as it's on <laughs> the list. <laughs> so we, but, we can uh, save it for then. Then, yeah, let's save it. Then. I don't care. Yeah. Sometimes there's overlapping. It rarely happens, but if it is, we just leave it. You know, and it's you know, we, it's all cool. Um, it's the fun of not knowing in advance, I guess. You know. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that song. And I'm just going to say that I'm going to make a last minute substitution then because it was going to be my number five uh, as well, Mike. So that allows me to make a quick last minute swap. Right. Oh, but by the way, with Sabrina, let me say not having anything to do with the song, but it's my daughter's name as well. So that was another reason why I picked it. But um, just oh, one wow. of my favorite uh, songs that. It's, as long as you have a child named Pate. <laughs> Plato. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and substitute it with a song that is actually just one of my favorites, and it's a B-side. I, I wanted to at least honorable mention it, but I'm going to bring it in here, which is Watching the Rain. Mm. I just always really love that song. It's a B-side from the Spilt Milk Sessions, I believe. And funny story about this. So at the time, I think it was... It's a long time ago, but about the maybe the year after Spilt Milk was out, maybe maybe ninety four, summer of ninety three or ninety four, I was traveling through Europe, and back then one of the fun things to do was 
go from city to city and find record stores and see what they had that you couldn't get in the States. And I would buy stacks of different CDs and then ship them home. And then when I got home, that's when I heard them, you know, just completely right. different way of things. But that was, a, that was one of the funnest parts of the trip for me. And one of the things I found was a CD single of Jellyfish. I, I think it was Ghost at Number One and Watching the Rain was the second song on that CD single. And I just couldn't wait to get home and hear that one extra song that I'd never heard. Couldn't reach that brass ring I couldn't touch such a bold thing Once or twice I'd call your name Must be nice to feel no shame Till then I'll be watching the history with that song because it was um gosh if i'm remembering accurately so that that song uh initially was uh a brainchild of andy's it was a idea that he had had floating around for a while um in fact free jellyfish pre-beatnik beach wow <laughs> um, going back. and it was actually yeah it was um a song that me and another friend of ours uh, had all kind of worked on as a experiment. We had we had just acquired a drum machine and some synthesizers, and we all loved the song idea. Uh, and it it never ended up finding its way into an actual Jellyfish album or a Beatnik Beach album or anything. But we always liked the song. And uh, after Belly Button when Don was, was courting us and, and, uh, in our lives, uh, he, as you may remember, invited us to contribute a song to the Ringo album he was working on at the time. Um, the album was called time takes time. And, uh, we submitted five songs to him because we had no idea what, what he wanted. And we decided to rework watching the rain. Um, and so, uh, it, it got, a total overhaul, including a new bridge and all kinds of stuff. But we worked on it during the demos for Spilt Milk. So we were it's kind on, of in that headspace. It, it is on the Beatnik, Beatnik Beach album, isn't it? Maybe it is. Yeah, I think it might have been. Oh, I don't uh, even have that. Just to, just to oh, that's cool. Yeah, that uh, was, it's all a blur. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... so uh, all that being said, uh, it did get reworked and a new bridge got written for it for uh, these Ringo demos, um, which he passed on. He chose another song. Um, thankfully, he chose one. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but that, you know, so again, when it came time to kind of share with the fans all the other things we had lurking in our closet, so to speak, um, that one came out. We wanted to share that. So that, that's the history behind that. But that's a, uh, that sounds kind of important because it was, I mean, that's certainly when Andy played me that idea 
all those years ago, I really just took it as a sign that we could be a contender in this arena that we dreamed about participating in. Um, that, that song has had such uh, integrity and such a standard and professionalism to it, for lack of a better term. And um, I always stood by it. But, you know, we, we were conscious of how it would go with a larger body of work and we never could find a place to fit it in. Yeah, because it's really stripped down compared to what's on Spilt Milk. It, it seems like it would be a weird fit there. But I just always wanted to figure out how to recreate that drum loop that kind of drives that song. I just think that is so cool sounding the way that whole thing comes out. It's uh, mm. really killer. Thanks. Uh, okay. Uh, Roger, you're number four. My number four. Oh, okay. That would be uh, the man I used to be. And um, I chose that one because uh, while um, I believe like Mike said a second ago, most of his jellyfish world comes alive on spilt milk. It does for me too, because spilt milk to me was when our vision was officially solidified. Um, and though I stand by everything on belly button, we were discovering what our full potential was to a degree. Uh, and there were dreams and the bar that I personally was setting so high for myself that I feel we, uh, not not so short of just uh you know you run out of time and certain songs just uh you're figuring out how to flesh them out entirely and and uh anyway the, the vision the vision uh is is realized through to fruition on spilt milk for me and and uh but man i used to be was a song that um you know i basically in a lot of ways even though it wasn't our first single it's the first one on the album and it really introduces the public to our world um, it's a very it's a very moody world and uh there's a sing-along aspect but it's a, it's a real kind of orchestrated folk song and um, um again i think it's a really great marriage between uh, andy's influences and mine and, and uh the success of a collaboration um, and um again we're you know we were a rock trio at the time with jason um, yet the song is very orchestral and just all discovering what that's going to look like. So it's, it's another experiment that I think uh, really succeeded and, um, uh, just shows, shows the world what they're about to be in for. <laughs> mm. And, uh, it's, uh, it was exciting. I, it's just, a, it's a nice kind of feather in my cap. It was another kind of like, Oh, we can do this. We just got to keep trying our best and really, keeping our work ethic intact and st keeping our focus um, and staying, you know, our eye on the prize and not veering from our vision. And, and it was just another example of, Hey, you guys got a lot of different territory you're covering. It's going to be kind of confusing for the fans. And we're like, no, the fans are going to get it because at the end of the day, we're, we're just giving them another uh, wonderful hook that they can really latch onto. And, and we believe our fans aren't just one dimensional and, you know, this was going to be the, the proof opening the album with this song. I never thought it'd be so hard to see you grow so fast. And turn into the man I used to be. But I hope you have more sense than I. 
Well, and just another quick little footnote. Um, I'm recalling, Man, I used to be in its demo form, which you guys have heard, of course. That was basically the song that saved me and Andy's record deal with Atlantic because Beanie Beach was signed to Atlantic. We broke up, and the, the A&R person, uh, obviously his general assumption was, well, I'm going to back the guy that founded the band, which was the other gentleman, Chris Kettner, who uh, sang a lot of the leads. And um, he was just more seasoned and experienced and professional uh, in that way. And of course, if I was the record company guy, that would have been my assumption as well. And uh, Andy and I scrambled to put four songs together on a cassette of demos we were proud of. And they were all over the map. And uh, two of them were Man I Used to Be and Bed Spring Kiss. Uh, not having any idea how this guy was going to react. And I'll never forget, uh, we played him, I forget what the first song was on the tape, but it wasn't either of those two. And he was kind of like, you know, like a scene from a movie. Like, he played the song, and you were hoping he didn't press stop halfway through and go, next, you know. Um, but uh, he looked at us, and we could tell he didn't think much of the first song. And then Man I Used To Be came on, and he, he listened all the way through, and he looks at us, and he said something like, wow, there's really something there. We should talk about this. And it was like, at that moment, I went, oh my God, there's hope. You know, we have a, we have a chance in heaven that this might actually uh, pan out in some degree. And uh, so it was kind of almost destined to be fully realized and be the opening track to the record that he was ultimately funding. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So. Um, all right, Mike, you want to jump in? You're number four. Uh, well, keeping with uh, Belly Button, and this is the only Belly Button track on my top five, but I'm glad I'm glad uh, you mentioned Jason as well, because uh, obviously, you know, Roger and Andy are the Lennon McCartney of Jellyfish, but it, it's, uh, it's I, I, there's something about the first album that I like too, because Jason was part of the band then, and Jason, I think, is such a part of the Jellyfish universe, even though he's only on Belly Button, um, you know, the Jellyfish universe kind of spreads out to Imperial Drag and the Greys and all these other bands. And he went on to do the Greys, which is one of my favorite debut albums. I love that album. And of course, he plays, you know, you guys play together now with, with Beck. So I think it's important to at least mention him as part of the, the Jellyfish universe. And By all uh, means, yes. But uh, that being said, uh, the, the tra- my number four track is The King is Half Undressed which is my favorite song on Belly Button. Um, I love the drum sound. The drum sound is huge. It's got that, that, that ticket to ride beat that's going through the verses and uh, the big drum fills on the bridge and that acapella breakdown with the Beach Boys harmonies. And it, it's, to me, it's one of those songs that has everything that Jellyfish is about, like in one track. And it, it, and it was a single, I believe, right? Um, yeah, yeah, it was the first one. I remember the video with the uh, fruit coming out of yeah. the guy's head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this to me that was one of those songs that has a little bit of everything that Jellyfish is about. If you can get that in a single, uh, you know, or a video, uh, that's that's always a home run. If you could kind of represent the band, because a lot of times a video or a single doesn't necessarily represent the band the best way. But I think this is a track that really did. Rise with a smile
At what point was that song in the in the recording of that album, and when did it come to be the the choice as the as the first single? Uh, we worked on all the songs simultaneously. I mean, we put a rhythm bed down and then start chipping away at overdubs, and uh, each song would start, you know, just uh, building itself automatically, or you'd run into the obvious challenges and. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but this was one that we all had great confidence in. Uh, it went through some changes from the demo, but not much. And um, But clearly it was one of our more rocking powerhouse uh, testosterone pop moments. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, Jack was so key in realizing that sonically, uh, as Mike said, with the drum sound, uh, not only Jason's amazing power guitar, but his even more incredible bass part. Um, And uh, um, yeah, this is certainly, uh, well, it's the next one on my list. Um, But um, I agree. And I think we all did that. This was this four minute tune encapsulated everything we wanted to put forth about our band. Uh, We wanted to share with the world very much a revelation of our personalities. Um, And, uh, it was really, you know, I, I always joke that the first album came out at the height of hair metal and the second album came out at the height of grunge. Right. Uh, right. And we were the most punk rock thing happening <laughs> in any given moment by some weird, weird <laughs> twist of fate. Um, and uh, that we had any life amongst those those trends, you know, both of which I have favorite groups and inspirations in both those trends. Um, right. um, but it was fun to... Uh, kind of be the uh, I don't know the the, uh, in the, <laughs> the unique yeah exactly exactly kind of be the the uh, the unique kind of alternative to all that uh, and still keep because uh, we were just you know classic hooks and sing along first and foremost uh, in spite of the different genres and styles we explored um, and and I think this really gave. Uh, those those communities um a chance to kind of take notice and and pay attention go oh what's going on over here um there's a familiarity to it but it's not some just retro nostalgic band kind of thing i mean you know everybody had their opinion but uh, we were we were simply trying to continue on in a a classic tradition uh, on our own terms um, I could relate because I mean, Dream Theater was coming around at the same time, but we were we were the opposite. I mean, we were the polar opposite of Jellyfish in that respect. We were doing fifteen minute songs with all this crazy playing, but but once again, like you're saying, it was the it was completely out of touch with what was popular at that time. So yeah. we were we were like the alternative the alternative to alternative, but in a in a different way than you guys were. Totally, totally, and I think I. All, all that is so important when you get uh, so much homogenous, you know, uh, trends like one band would come out, you know, Soundgarden or Nirvana or whatever, and then you got 50 groups cloning that. It's like, well, that's not very interesting. Yeah. But uh, it became a, a scene, you know. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, all right. I'm going to jump in. Uh, my number four is going to be from Spilt Milk, uh, Bye Bye Bye. That's the one I'm going to go with. And I just always just love this song. It's just weird. 
and um, kind of this, I, I, I don't know what style, it's sort of like an like a Itali- Italian movie kind of thing you're watching. I, I always remember somewhere you in the second verse, I think it is, you guys just sneak in a tuba. And that was always like the coolest thing to <laughs> me. Because like, what song has a tuba? And then... and 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 then there's the the whole weird middle breakdown with accordions i mean there's so many instruments going on in this song when you're working on a song of this was it just like oh somebody suggests oh let's add this and it's like yeah let's add it and then somebody else says let's add this too sure why not i mean was that sort of how it was uh yes and no no i mean that's you can't that's too there's too much money being spent when you go in the studio to have that attitude it's too risky so you better have some kind of game plan that the <laughs> clock is ticking and the record company people are showing up going, you guys finished yet? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know how many more checks I can keep writing. Um, but uh, a song like Bye 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 was rooted in, I mean, you know, neither of you will be surprised. I mean, it's very much uh, like Mary Hopkins, Those Were the Days, um, or, um, you know, any kind of, uh, yeah, kind of, uh, very ethnic, uh, traditional uh, sing-along, um, but with kind of a more of a modern pop twist. Um, you know, McCartney was awfully good at doing that himself. Um, and this was us having fun with that kind of realm. So we knew the song was solid just, you know, with chordal accompaniment, you know, piano and singing and, and the, the lyric and vocal. Um, fleshing in all the arrangement stuff where you get to have a lot of fun and we had some very specific ideas that we had done. Um, I don't know if we had demoed it up. I don't remember the extent of that demo or not. But uh, things like the accordion, we knew were going to be in there because they had that kind of folky element. But what happened was, as we kept bringing in musicians to flush out the song Brighter Day, um, which was more open-ended and unfinished, it was a bit of a question mark and almost didn't make it on the record, um, but we would have musicians come in to play on those. Uh, very often, Albie would go, oh, oh, before you leave, let's put up Bye 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 and see if anything pops into your head, or let's see if hmm. anybody has an idea with this instrument, you know, like the tuba or whatever. And, and uh, But uh, but even, you know, tuba's not that far out on that song, because it's um, almost like a Jewish uh, klezmer band uh, ensemble. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, it's just it's just fun with arranging classicism. So we would just throw all kinds of stuff at it and uh, then see, let's keep it for this section, take it out for that section. Um, the whole, with the whole intention being cre- creating an environment. And again, that song becomes pretty cinematic um, and very, you know, there's not much rock and roll left in it at the, <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, hmm. um, and yet... It, it sits in the big family and material that, that is that album. Yeah.
right, let's jump to uh, your number three, Roger. Uh, so as I said a second ago, that would be uh, King is Half Undressed. That song, uh, because we did start it early on in the recording sessions, it was pretty clear to me that, um, because we didn't know Jack Joseph, we had met with Albie, and he had won us over, and certainly his previous work had you know, spoke for itself. And although we weren't trying to make any kind of follow-up to any of the Bee Gees records, um, uh, we had nothing but respect for those albums and how they were put together. Uh, but Albie was very, very confident in bringing this new engineer that he'd recently worked with, Jack Joseph Quigg, uh, onto, onto the scene. And um, we knew nothing about him. And we pretty much were taking a big chance because there were no records uh, that we could go refer to. Let's listen to his sonic abilities. Uh, but we trusted Albie implicitly. And he said, this is a guy I wouldn't trust this record to anybody else. And it was really on the King is half undressed where we saw just the scope of his abilities, uh, with getting rhythm section sounds, drums, bass, guitar. And, um, uh, it was, you know, going beyond our expectation. The album was just becoming so 3d because we were, we were all Zeppelin obsessed. Uh, but, um, you know, and it was like, we were obsessed with Zeppelin, but, and the, the way those records sounded, but also the way the Queen records and Steely Dan records and 10cc records sound. And so we just had the bar so freaking high. Um, and yet we were not experienced mixers, engineers ourselves. So we didn't know how to articulate uh, our wishes other than to play them examples of stuff. But really at the end of the day, that was all going to be moot because Jack had his own approach, his own tactics for uh, getting into this record and um, he had an awful lot of things he wanted to try in terms of sonic experiments that he used us for, thankfully. Uh, and I really think his goal uh, sonically really comes to ultimate fruition on the uh, Black Crows record and the Grays record that he does. Mm. I mean, those records are just Jack Quigg at, at his best, although I have no problem love what he did for our records i'm just saying you could kind of see the arc of what he was striving for and, and i think uh you know, they're, they're even realized further on those those albums that that's the sign of a great producer because i remember after beca becoming so hooked with the jellyfish albums looking up his discography and checking out other albums of his and that's always if when you know that was the way it was for me with, with uh you know roy thomas baker or uh you know, George Martin or whatever you want, you want to, when, when a producer can have that big of an impact on an album that says so much for, you know, their artistic input as well. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. uh, yeah. It was truly a, truly a team effort that way. So your, your brother on belly button is listed. I was, I always wanted to ask is listed as band, Witch doctor and mime. <laughs> what? Is it, is it, did he not play on the record and, and came on after? Is that why it's listed like that? Or, or, that that's correct. Yeah, he he was in college. Uh, he was um, for many reasons he was not our first go to guy. I mean, he was majoring in journalism. He was not studying music at college or anything like that. And and uh, he was off in his own world. And and uh, uh, we had after we recorded the record and Jason had played all, all these wonderful bass parts. Not to mention John Petitucci and our, our other mutual friend Steve McDonald, who just like. We had this, this incredible wealth of bass players on the record, but we auditioned 
some very talented people and they just weren't cutting it. And, uh, um, I, I believe it was Andy that said, well, what the hell is your brother doing? He plays bass, doesn't he? I go, he plays bass, but it's not, you know, it's not his vocation and obsession in life. And, uh, I said, well, let's, let's try him out anyway. Cause we knew we, we were friendly with him and, and, uh, he shared a lot of our aesthetic, uh, and our, our visual, uh, tendencies and so forth. Um, so, uh, in a nutshell, yeah, we brought him in and he, he really championed, he really helped us and rose to the occasion. He really became a fourth legitimate member with the visuals and art direction, and, uh, video planning and all those things that were so important after the recording of the record and certainly putting a live stage show together, which we had these, these makeshift props and everything. And he became a full force in that realm. Um, and basically went, uh, to, you know, base college for a year. I mean, Jason really took him under his wing and, uh, showed him, look, this is what you're going to have to do. And you're going to have to really woodshed these parts and blah, blah. And he, he went for it. And, uh, he had, uh, he and I had done some harmonizing in high school. So these three and four part harmonies weren't foreign to him, but again, it was lots and lots of practice for everybody to recreate these records. Yeah. And he, he did look the part. That's, that was definitely one thing. That was obvious <laughs> in the videos. Uh, all right, Mike, your number three. Uh, back to the Spilt Milk album. It's uh, the Ghost at number one, um, which uh, I absolutely love. Once again, it's got all the elements that I love. Uh, the harpsichord is such a huge part of the jellyfish sound and Roger's sound. And, and whenever I hear a harpsichord, I just think of the Partridge family. And who else was doing <laughs> that kind of stuff, that kind of orchestration in 1993. But um, I, lo I also loved the whole Pet Sounds influence on the bridge and the outro. Uh, I loved Roger's uh, vocals on the bridge and everything. But uh, that whole Pet Sounds orchestration with the timpani and the sleigh bells, the wood block, the marching snare, the theremin on the fade out. I mean, that's all straight out of the Pet Sounds sessions of 66. And, and I just loved that you know, there was a band in 93 that w was copying all that stuff. It's like, I, I had the same exact record collection of these guys. You know, I, I, I knew that we had the, the same background, the same record collections and the same love for that kind of sixties and seventies stuff. Pet sounds. I mean, did, did you when you were making this? Did you specifically say let's cop that vibe, or or 
or with a lot of times where you're just kind of just going in the moment. Because when I listen to Jellyfish, I hear this melting pot of everything. Queen, Beatles, Supertramp, 10CC, everything like you said. Were you guys, um, would you wear those influences on your sleeve and proud of them? Or were you, were you some people get offended when you compare your music to some somebody else i don't know if that's the, the, the way you guys were or if you were openly you know sharing your love for those old records right i mean I, it, for us it was very innocent and natural I, I i don't take offense those those types of compliments are compliments to me um you know i mean we we really came other than jason uh andy and i really came from a, a jazz tradition in high school and college and in that instance, you know, you, you, it's like learning any other craft. You go in and you obsess over your heroes right. and then you extract totally. your favorite parts. And then you have the, uh, uh, ultra challenging t- task of making your own statement. Now that you have all these kind of tools and, uh, things in your, in your, your paint box. Um, and, uh, so we would write a tune or in, in the United case, we'd have bring unfinished ideas to each other. Oh, here's a verse I like. I don't know what to do. There's a chorus in there. Somebody, you know, let's put our heads together. And oh, now the song needs a bridge. Let's see what we can come up with. And once we had, you know, the guitar, vocal, or piano, vocal version of that, and we were high fiving each other, like, okay, that's solid. We have faith in this. Well, the the arranging part, you just start chipping away, and you sitting down right. and. You're either in a room with the guys or you're in front of the computer or a sequencer. And, you know, really, it's not that conscious. Uh, sections, parts just start flying out and ideas start flying out and sounds start flying out. And, of course, if you're digesting a 24-7 diet of uh, all the groups that you just named, it's, it's inevitable these things, things are going to kind of be natural. We were very conscious of... of we didn't want anything to be forced. It was going to be natural and it was going to serve the song melody or not. It wasn't just going to be for the sake of putting it in uh, because we're learning at a very rapid rate, the art of arrangement. Um, and, you know, and the art of arrangement is to create this wonderful backdrop without calling any attention to yourself. It's almost like scoring, right? In this case, you'd be, you're scoring the main vocal melody and lyric uh, without distracting from it, only ever supporting it. And um, so uh, just doing our best to be uh, young, masterful arrangers in that way. And, and thankfully, uh, we had so, you know, we had 40, 50 years of, of brilliant, popular music, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s to choose from. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's why, you know, I, I, speaking for myself, you know, the wonderful world of Thomas Dolby, which was, and Peter Gabriel, which was just as much computerized and electronic and synthesized and programmed as the wonderful world of Burt Bacharach, which was much more like orchestra pit rhythm section and, and uh, you know, Broadway kind of uh, or, orchestral instruments, small string section, small brass section. Those were just as much of an influence. And then like, mm-hmm. okay, well, we need some harmonies. Well, we love how Fleetwood Mac does it. We love how the Carpenters do it. We love how 10CC does it. We love how Queen does it. What's our version of that? And you really don't right. know that until you start getting around a microphone and 
just getting on there and seeing whose voice sounds best where, and do we double this? Do we triple this? Should Andy just take all these parts here or should Jason supplement it on the bottom? That's a lot of trial and error, but then you start figuring out, well, what's, what's our sound that's going to be as epic as Crosby, Stills and Nash, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or like, like hope, hopefully we're getting somewhere in that was close to that, you know, godliness. And, um, uh, and then at, at some point you just look at each other and go, all right, is this blowing our minds? And is it impressing is the producer and, and Jack? Are they in agreement? And then, you know, then, then it's, then you just surrender to the world because at that point you, you, I, hopefully you're standing by it enough. You, you don't care what the A&R guy thinks. You don't care what your girlfriend thinks. And you can't think what the press or the general public's going to receive. It's like, we are confident this is reflecting our heart and soul to the best of our abilities and uh, we've realized the song to its full potential. Uh, and then you, you got to let it go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right on. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it going. I'm going to jump in my number three. From uh, Belly Button, I'm going to go I Want to Stay Home. That's my one pick from that album. But it was always just a song that always stuck out to me. I love the, uh, the little trumpet kind of callback in the choruses, which was so Beatles. Paul McCartney asked to me. And uh, just great, again, great vocal harmonies, real simple, just a simple melody, just a, a brilliant song. And I, one that right away was, was the one that grabbed me when I first got that album. Like that trumpet part, is that something that's in your head when you're writing it? Um, or it's something that comes along with the arranging later on? Uh, definitely the latter. So, that you know, I don't even remember why, but I was thinking about this song the other day and uh, just how that song... Uh, while it's a mere two chords throughout, other than the brief bridge deviation, uh, was one of the most challenging songs personally to realize because uh, harmonically it's it's very static, um, and yet you've got to take the listener somewhere, you know, in the three and a half minutes you've got. Um, so this was a song uh, entirely. It came from a Andy's. Um, collection of ideas and uh but jason and i had a lot of fun contributing arrangement wise i mean that whole guitar intro and a lot of the a lot of the kind of mcguinn kind of 60s birds guitar happening in that song really came from jason's personality um which really helped me i thought it was a huge asset to keeping the momentum of the song going Um, because you just have those two block chords going back and forth back and forth Mm. And while, of course, you're relying on the melody to carry the listener, there's a lot of dead air, right? So the chorus is, I want to stay home, rest, 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 rest. I want to stay home right here, rest, rest, rest. Okay, now what do we do? We're in the the chorus for crying out loud. We can't drop the ball. And that's where the trumpet uh, idea came from, which was uh, we were just experimenting. I think we had a little trumpet sound up on one of the synthesizers. And I remember desperately trying to come up with some little fills that would be that would be neat, but I didn't want them to sound overly jazzy or overly classical, or I just kind of wanted to be kind of incidental echoing in the background, right, yeah. you know. Um, so that's what we went for, and then obviously brought a very uh, capable player into um, uh, it was Chuck Finley, who was a quite an LA session guy. Uh, to play the part, and, and th- you know, thank God he did. But um, 
uh, yeah, there's a lot of flavors because I think we have, I think we shared the demo of that song, but you know, it re- really got three dimensional by the final product. But, uh, you know, believe somebody might say, Oh, well, King is half undressed is one of the or bed spring kiss might've been one of the more challenging songs on man. Well, I want to stay home was one of the more challenging ones for me. <laughs> I was just like, Oh, what are we going to do? We got to take it somewhere. I want to stay. My number two is Sabrina. Um, uh, I was very, that, that song was uh, one that Andy and I had written pretty early on. I think we wrote it during, or prior to Belly Button. And uh, for whatever reason, it got pushed out of the way. We had other ideas for our 10 songs on Belly Button. Um, but we never lost faith in it. And it was always a very short song, which I think is one of the reasons we never considered it as a full contender. Um, and then we realized that that was its merit, that it be, almost became like a, a short little children's nursery rhyme song. And I think we extended the second verse to give it some length. Um, but yeah. I love the, the B good. section on the second verse is great. Uh, it's got that kind of twist. Uh, the B section Correct. on the second verse is one of my favorite parts of the song. Right. So see, that was, that was conscious and deliberate and, um, I think it really helped us realize that, well, this song didn't have to be more than three minutes, but, and you could, it could really stand on its own two feet and continue to lure the listener into the world of spilt milk that was starting to reveal itself. Um, I'm particularly proud of that song because you just go through so many different journeys. Um, I was I was very happy with the marriage between the fun, lighthearted nursery rhyme, innocence, uh, the playfulness of certain sections juxtaposed against the very kind of in-your-face, tough kind of queen elements, uh, both with the guitars and the vocal stacks. Um, and it, it's, it's a high-contrast song. Um, that was something that I felt we could have done more of on Belly Button. And here we were finally doing it. So I, I really wanted to showcase this tune as much as possible. Um, and thankfully, uh, it really has become a favorite for a lot of fans uh, for the Spilt Milk record. Um, so again, I, I kind of felt like, oh, okay, mission accomplished. We, we had this lofty goal for this tune and it really seemed to hit home with everybody. And I, I couldn't have been more proud of all the experiments that were conducted on it. So. That's why it's number number two for me. 
and so far the only the only one that was on all three of our yeah, lists so yeah. far and, and surprising oh, I, I i always thought i might be a uh the weird one for liking that song as much but i'm glad that you guys uh also like it as much i mean lyrically too i just love the lyrics in that they're so quirky and uh the the way it all flows together it just seems it it sounds like it was effortless and i and i can't <laughs> no. imagine it probably was but it it the way it all comes together it's perf it just so perfectly fits it's really so cool great thanks all right mike you're number 2 my number 2 is the song that follows sabrina on the album it's a new mistake and um once again it's just I don't know. Anytime I hear any of these songs, it just gives me this feeling. It just brings me back to my childhood. And, uh, I, I, what, I, you know, like I've been saying with all these songs, the orchestration and the arrangements, uh, the use of the instruments. I love the Wurlitzer and the castanets on the choruses. It's so reminiscent of, of like Super Tramp. You know, you can't hear a Whirly and castanet without thinking of like, <laughs> you know, Breakfast in America. Yeah. Uh, I love the uh, the slide guitar solo, which, you know, so George Harrison or Badfinger. Um, it's just, I, I love the song. Another one that just has all the elements and it just gives me that goosebump feeling, you know? favorite songs as well i'm not going to say any more about that one and uh all right i'm going to jump in to my number two um and i'm going to go with brighter day from spilt milk the the closing track this to me was like the band's prog epic sort of the, the closest thing to what your day in the life or something i think just throwing everything in it that could possibly be thrown in very kind of dark um and uh, lots of orchestration, some of the best lyrical imagery that, that, you know, who wrote the lyrics for that song? Oh, Andy. I mean, he was the exclusive lyricist. That was, that was thankfully his department, which he excelled at. And um, uh, that song, uh, if I you know, played you the initial concept was so small and light and, tiny <laughs> and we just loved the kind of melody from the verse to chorus um the bridge hadn't been written yet uh and what happened was as andy started getting into the lyric which proved to be very challenging for him it was taking forever which was one of the reasons it kept getting postponed uh, we didn't have a finished lyric but he was like no 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 i, I think i'm on to something i just gotta get in there and you know wrap it up um but it started becoming this very uh, cinematic, almost 
musical and it's um, there were so many characters that were going to be singing this lyric. Um, and uh, that led to the song itself evolving into something more grand and epic. Um, we wrote the bridge, uh, which I'm particularly proud of because it was so, it was such a left turn to how the rest of the song was unfolding. And you get this big, almost circusy elephant walk from the rest of the field of the song. And I, I, I was always trying to make sure we had one foot in the rock camp because not only was that me being true to my own essence, as fans can see when the post jellyfish band I created with Eric Dover was Imperial Drag, which was much more rock at its core. But um, I, I always wanted to have that element to everything we did as much as possible uh, when it was appropriate. And so that bridge, I, I love how tough and, and attitude-y and the song gets there um, and creates that nice momentary detour to land you back into the very tiny come down section of the circus kind of packing up and leaving town. So many good lines in there. Um, you know, how the, how the circus makes the world safe for anarchy and uh, <laughs> hanging in the closet yeah. of your elbow room. And um, I mean, just really just fantastic, captivating stuff. When you're reading that, you're like, how do you come up with this? So cool. For the seeker of thrills, beyond the Ferris wheel, there's a man with one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel. He's an actor of sorts who sold himself too short. So now he travels door to door performing. Being done to a salesman. Oh, my country, tears of thee. We didn't we didn't have an ending per se we had we had the bridge and we we're like well all that's working what how do we exit this just coming back full circle to the start of the album is, was brilliant of course so these are all things that that literally were born out of not having a plan um and trying things and well since we don't have an ending why don't we just keep extending ideas and, and seeing all the places it can go and that and then at some point, somebody suggested uh, that, you know, how, how is there a way that we could tie this into the repeat factor on the repeat feature on the CD player? Um, but, uh, yeah, so like I said, because the song was so open-ended and the lyrics were taking a while to finish, it almost didn't even make the record because it had le much less of a game plan than any of the other tunes. So, If I could... Mention a side note having nothing to do with jellyfish, but um, Roger, if you don't, if you've never heard uh, 
the big elf album, uh, Cheat the Gallows. I, I would highly recommend it because to me, that's the most Spilt Milk-esque album to come out since Spilt Milk. And Big Elf is a band. Damon Fox is the keyboard player and singer. And uh, it, it, it reminds me a lot of Spilt Milk in terms of just having all of these sounds and influences and styles, uh, you know, everything from, you know, the Beatles to Floyd to circus music. So uh, anybody listening, if you don't know the Big Elf album, Cheat the Gallows, and Roger, if you don't know it, I highly recommend it. It's, it's I think, my favorite album of, of that style since since Spilt Milk. I just wanted to give that a little side note shout out. Oh, I absolutely appreciate that. Yeah, not only do I know the album, I'm, I've been friends with Damon uh, forever. Um, oh, cool. When I first yeah. Moved to, yeah, when I first moved to L.A., he was one of the people that I connected with early on, and he was one of the... Um, people who work regularly at uh, some of the classic Los Angeles vintage music stores like black market music. And uh, uh, he and I were, you know, we were like keyboard collecting buddies together. It's like, Hey, right. I found one of these. I've, I've already got one. Do you want to make an offer on it? You know, and, and uh, uh, always looking out for each other. Oh yeah. That was def- that was definitely the mutual admiration society. Um, That's great. And uh, very fortunate to know th- those people and his, his family of, friends and music makers and um uh yeah i mean just he was always so flattering complimentary to stuff i was working on so, well yeah. i mean i played I'm drums on the i played drums on the next album uh into the maelstrom but i mean damon and i are brothers from another mother and we just geek out on all the same stuff that is definitely part of your history and your influences as well he's definitely a, a kindred spirit in that respect yes He's amazing, amazing person. So, so are his collaborators and, and the whole Swedish arena that they uh, fell into. I couldn't have been more happy yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. Small world. Uh, all right, Roger, your uh, big number one song. Well, no surprise. It's a new mistake. We've already been talking about it. Uh, yeah, and it's number one for me basically because it just it all comes together. Um, this is where everything I was ever striving for in collaborating with Andy, and I would like to thank him as well. This is where it all just solidifies into the kind of perfect model of what we were about, what we were, what we were trying to share with the world. And um, um, it came together in chunks. There was nothing easy about it, but as it was being realized it was just kind of like i think we both understood wow we really have something here you know we'll we'll hold this up to any of anything ever done by our heroes and just to have that incredible just what a bizarre feeling to have that level of confidence Mm -hmm. in in a piece of art you've created um Mm -hmm. and there's a part of your ego that almost won't allow you to do that well well how dare you say that you you know written something that's made you happy as a paul mccartney song or or a freddie <laughs> mercury song like no that that's actually happening here and, and and it's 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 basically the ultimate reward from all of your devotion and commitment and hard work and perseverance and uh right i mean it's like the grand musical spirit is singing through all of us so why can't it sing through us too and um, that I really felt that kind of uh, empowerment, and I can't wait to share this with the world. A sensation when that song was falling in place. Mm. Um, uh, there are some really fun, interesting musical moments, like the um, 
guitar solo you guys were commenting on earlier. Andy and I always knew that we wanted a slide solo there, a very melodic slide solo. Of course, neither of us had the guitar chops to do that. And we were demoing it up. Um, we asked our friend Lyle Workman to come in and help us with some of the demoing. And uh, this is a fantastic guitar player who, who we knew for a while. Um, but he had been off in Todd Rundgren's band and doing all kinds of things. And he was in town. We were doing spilt milk and uh, demos. He came over. I mean, ultimately, he plays on the record. But he came over and it, it was like he was in the firing line. Andy and I were singing him all these ideas for potential melodies for that solo. And so the three of us are massing this solo together and Lyle's playing it. We get, we get a solo we like. And he goes on his merry way. Well, in the following days, it was time for Andy to start recording the lead vocal. And we were working off of a computer and, uh, but recording everything to a, a cassette, like eight track, multi-track cassette. And, um, and he was in there. I was in the other room working on something and Andy was in the other room recording himself singing in private. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, he's got the headphones on, so I can't hear the music or anything. I just hear him singing the lyrics to New Mistake. And at one point I hear him go, oh, bleep. <laughs> and he starts cursing up a storm. He's like, God damn it. You know, I'm like, oh shit, something bad has just happened. He's really pissed off about something that just transpired with the lead vocal. What's going on? And he comes out and he goes, I just erased the front of Lyle's guitar solo. <laughs> oh no. And we were all just devastated. Well, of course, mixed blessing. Cause what happened was when it came down to record the record, we showed Albie what the front of the solo was supposed to look like that Andy had accidentally clipped off. And Albie goes, no, 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 no. It's much better without it. I go, what do you mean? The, the beginning of the solo sets up the whole lick. He goes, no, what happens is you guys modulate into this weird key mm. change for the solo, and it gives a chance for the listener to settle into that. And then after you've had a breath, then the guitar solo comes in right on that next bar, and it's just very, very musical. And we're like, huh? Because we'd never <laughs> thought of it that way. We were, we were attached to that front. And um, basically we were won over. We started to see the beauty of that moment. Um, so you know, ended up being mixed blessing, but uh, oh wow, it, I never noticed. Now, now yeah, now I'll listen to that differently. That's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I can't awesome. picture it entering any way other than the yeah, way. Exa that yeah, exactly. Dude, dude, right. Dude. Well, that is that it's a, an incredible, uh, incredible song. Love it. Love it. Perfect. Uh, all right, Mike, you're number one. Well, for me, this was easy. Um, this is not only my favorite Jellyfish song. It's one of my favorite songs, period. Um, and it was like I said earlier, it was the very first thing I heard from the band. It's uh, joining a fan club. And uh, I mean, I guess I, I heard Hush first, obviously. But uh, I look at Hush as almost like, a you know, part of this song a prelude to it but um this was the song that the galactic cowboys played me they played me uh hush into this 
And I never even got beyond this song for hours. I just replayed this song over and over and over. It was like everything I had been looking for. Um, it, you know, it had those Brian May guitars and the Queen vocal stabs and that, that bridge, that middle bridge section reminded me of like uh, Wings Rock Show. Um, mm. This incredible bass playing and, and the huge drum sound. I mean, hearing those drum fills right at the top of the song, uh, it was... It, it completely captivated me. There's a, there's a drum fill uh, right before the final chorus. There's like a, you know, everything's climaxing and you have that whistle uh-huh. sound and there's this drum fill that I must have rewound the tape <laughs> 50 times to try to learn this fill. And now that actual sticking and that fill is part of my, my everyday arsenal now. But uh, it was, it was, that whole song just blew me away. It had everything I had been looking for in a band. And at that point, I was completely hooked on Jellyfish. She turned the nightlight on and blew him a kiss. He stared back through his green Crayola eyes. She traced his likeness from off the back of the disc. Next to the box top, promise of the biggest prize. Joining a fan club with my friends. Filling our backwards with t shirts and a fighter. Look so dreamy, I'm in love from above. When I'm picking up a falling star. That's so um, great to hear you uh, talk about some of the details of well, that song. I mean, I, I think Andy so is a completely uh, Andy is a completely underrated drummer. I mean, uh, you know, everybody talks about him as a singer and a songwriter, and uh, you know, uh, but I think his drumming is so overlooked. In, in you know, some of these fills were just so tasty. Uh, like even like. Um, you know, uh, that is why, just like a simple, you know, uh, it was so tasty. And, and the way he played, I don't know, you know, for anybody that never saw videos of you guys playing live or got to see you play live, the fact that he was standing up playing live at the front of the stage on a little cocktail kit, so unique. And uh, I, I, I miss him, you know, like, I, I wish that there was more music coming from him, not only as a singer and a songwriter, but as a drummer. And I guess that's the, the big question that, you probably get asked every single day and I might as well ask it right here. Right <laughs> well, yeah, now. I was going to ask it so <laughs> <may> as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, w- what is he up to? Where is he? You know, we, we miss him, you know, uh, all I can do is share what I know. I mean, uh, we, you know, we've chosen basically to not be in each other's lives after we disbanded, but, uh, we certainly have had some communication. And as far as I know, he's not only had a lot of success, but been very, satisfied um uh scoring primarily uh children's uh tv shows for disney and so forth a lot of cartoon a lot of animated stuff i think at one point he had like five shows on disney i remember i i was gonna bring this up because my son used to watch the winnie the pooh cartoon on disney and it had this song this theme song that could have been on spilled milk. And one day I'm watching it and it says theme song by Andy Sturmer. And I'm like, no, it has to be him because no one else with that name would write a song that sounds like that. So, um, well, I was also going to say to Mike's earlier compliments, um, you know, I had the 
unique privilege of growing up with Andy in high school as a drummer. Not, neither of us were writing songs. That's not, that was not in our future. We were trying to be Steve Gadd and Chick Corea, um, hmm. you know, and, and so, or an Andy, more specifically, Andy was obsessed with Simon Phillips and Terry no Bozio. I mean, who <laughs> wow. wasn't at that time. And uh, uh, Andy absolutely had those chops, was he- headed in that direction. And, and uh, I was obsessing over, you know, everything from Keith Emerson to Herbie Hancock and, and Thomas Dolby. So th- th- that's where our headspace was. And, and Bobby was doing that. And literally what happened was, uh, in Andy's case, somewhere around the age of 17, and in my case, somewhere around the age of 19, uh, the songwriting bug hit us. And it was kind of like, wow, we can play these other people's brilliant tunes and derive pleasure from that, and it's fun to improvise over them, but why do I keep living jamming on these songs over here? And it was because, well, because you like the chord changes, you like the harmony, you like the song structure. And I started realizing it was ultimately all about the song. And um, I was having a real awakening with the body of work that was XTC. I had always been a fan, but I just started devouring everything they'd ever done. And uh, they were kind of the model for me. It was, it was how do you write a song as brilliant and as interesting and as clever as Andy Partridge or Elvis Costello or, or any of these kind of contemporaries at that time. Not to mention the other, you know, pantheon of, of songwriters that we all know and appreciate but that's what took over and I, and I literally stopped practicing piano and started because I knew how to do that and I was like I can't write an original idea that I think is any good and I suddenly mm. I felt a handicap like some it was like suddenly somebody told me you know all that work you've been doing for 15 years at your instrument now, now you have to go back to square one and I was like what mm. it was the, it was the weirdest feeling and I, I remember I, w- I started writing songs like a madman because I was obsessed. And I didn't play anybody. I didn't even play Andy an idea that I was proud of for like two years um, because he was kind of ahead of me. And he would submit ideas to me. And say, hey, I want to share with you something I was working on. And I'd be, good God, not only is this a really solid idea, but he sounds like Sting for crying out loud. You know, how, how is this happening? And, um, and we didn't even talk about drum and all that stuff anymore we were we were just obsessed with songwriting but you know those chops never left and uh i assumed when uh, jellyfish only broke up that andy was not only going to continue to write uh and have solo records but more importantly he was going to go on to be a la session drummer mm. because he had those chops yeah um, clearly he wasn't interested in doing that but I- i'm telling you this is and obviously mike has noticed and certainly other drummers have, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't 10 years of Andy playing on records that we know Phil Collins from. Um, I mean, we, all of us were surprised when Phil went solo and had such great success because, you know, Peter Gabriel was singing all the tunes and you heard Phil kind of singing a little bit in the background, but goddamn, those, those drum grooves were just impeccable. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And then for him to become the pop star he was, was kind of like, wait, what? And and barely anybody knew him as the as the amazing drummer that he was, other than the in the air tonight. Yeah, still. right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's uh, well. At least he has some success, and uh, you know the the music you guys did together is just um, well. That's why we're here, and yeah, it's so. timeless. I, I, 
I have to ask it, and you probably once again you probably get asked every day, and I don't know if it bothers you. I, I mean, I've been I left Dream Theater almost ten years ago, and it bothers me that people still ask me about Dream Theater all the time. Does it bother you that Jellyfish is such a huge part of your? Um, you know, it's been it's been twenty five years now since the band disbanded. Does it bother you that it's still such a part of your uh, past and reputation and? And the, the the question is, would there ever be a reunion? I mean, is, is it ever talked about, you know, is that ever something that could happen? Uh, it doesn't bother me in the least. What, what, what bother, it is nothing but flattering and complimentary that anybody all these years later gives a damn right. at all about a single note we made. I, anytime I get a random compliment or uh, out of, you know, surprises me, catches me off guard, it's, it's just, it just makes my day. Um, because it's kind of like, well, in our brief moment on the radar there, clearly lives were affected, and right. I, I was able to forward that gift that all my heroes have given to me. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the same old kind of like, helped me through all those really challenging times in high school and, and uh, with life in general, and always kind of gave me this beyond the physical kind of spiritual essence that is music, right? It's It's invisible, but we know when it's locked into this amazing metaphysical realm, each of us experience it with our favorite music. And, uh, you know, some of the emails, and I'm sure you've gotten them too, where somebody, some stranger in South America is like telling you how two songs you did, you know, has been the greatest thing in their lives. And you're like, how is this even happening? We're never going to even right. meet. Um, and that's just the greatest. So I obviously understand why, you know, people didn't, people would love 10 more big star records. That's not, right. <laughs> that, that was never, that was never to be. And, um, uh, the thing that's just sad for me is that in our early twenties that we didn't have the, uh, communication tools, the, the therapy tools, if you will, to, uh, you know, try to salvage our personal differences and, and work through mm -hmm. those things. And maybe, maybe you've gotten a third record out of it, but that, that was not to be as it was, going to be another life learning experience for all of us but uh yeah um and on that note you know uh, there i i have obviously i've made music with jason i've made music with eric um there there's always conversations going on about you know is there is there a way to collaborate on whatever kind of side projects and um but uh so i mean there's there's always that kind of option, but the, the core of jellyfish reuniting, I don't think, I mean, clearly it would have happened already. I, right. I just don't think any of us are um, collectively. I don't think any of us are interested enough as a group to put that in motion. Yeah. So yeah, otherwise it would have happened enough, already. Yeah. Well, right. Um, I, before I let you guys go, uh, I, I want to jump in with my number one, but it's very simple because it's going to be new mistake as well. And, uh, this was for me when I was making my list was my first thing I put on my list. Cause I knew it was going to be my number one because it's, it is the jellyfish song as far as I'm concerned. So, um, you said everything about it, Roger, and I, I agree with all your points about it. And so, um, the minute, and it was on all yeah, three lists yeah, as well. And, I, and when I, I mean, it was joining a fan club on that album, and then you're hit, you listen to Sabrina, and you're like, these guys have gone insane. And then you hear New Mistake. Then you hear <laughs> New Mistake, and you're like, this is the... Gr it's by, by song three, 
at that point, it's like, this is the greatest album I've heard. I've only heard three songs. Right. That's... Totally. <laughs> well, I, I realized, look, looking at my list, four out of my five songs are side, from side one of Still yeah. Milk. <laughs> It, yeah, it could well, be the, yeah. quick, the, the perfect yeah. album side. I used to love that um, album, Side A, Side B. That's very cool. Um, look, uh, I, man, I don't know what else to say, Roger. This has been such an honor for me. And obviously, I think you can tell from Mike as well. Uh, we're such big fans. And, uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, if you would have told me I'm having this phone call uh, with the two of you talking about this, I would never have believed it. So... It's uh, really an honor, and I'm uh, thank you so much oh, for cool. making the time. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, I just need to figure out a way now to get on the phone with um, people who are going to shower me with compliments <laughs> once a week. Um, <laughs> that never feels wrong. Um, but uh, yeah, no, this is uh, great. It's an honor for me to speak to both of you too, and thank you so much for your heartfelt sharing. And uh, it just. Uh, means the world to me that uh again music continues to affect people and, and um it always works it, it's uh it's the fuel that i need to keep writing original music and if i can just get this wow. damn fan funding thing figured out <laughs> get, that, get that happening more often where can yeah. people get uh the glamping ep because i couldn't find it online uh when i was looking recently is it is it anywhere to be bought or downloaded or anything um, it's in the process of having that all situated. So it initially was, for obvious reasons, it's just going to be the, the Pledge Music campaign, which it did, and it had that life. But you know, the intention was always to then have it in some kind of more traditional outlet, either with a small label or distribution company, et cetera, et cetera. And me and my uh, manager are in the throes of that now. So I wish it was already wrapped up, but it's, it's yeah. not. But it I is mean, happening. It, yeah, people cause... will be able to get it. All right, cool. So, uh, and people can follow you on Facebook or Twitter, or what's the best place to follow you? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm the. I'm the anti Mike Portnoy in this respect. Uh, <laughs> in that, uh, I have uh, been uh, very uh, remiss about taking advantage of the world of social media, which is. Uh, Personally, if I didn't have any kind of career association, I wouldn't be on social media, period. But mm -hmm. obviously, there's a great advantage to uh, interfacing and connecting with our wonderful fans, and um, I simply need to be more active there. But yeah, I mean, I have a Facebook page and all that stuff. It's just that uh, I'm not on there every day uh, engaging. Yeah, well, necessary evil these days, isn't it? Um, but uh, everybody keep an eye out for... Uh, what Roger's doing. If Beck is hitting your town, go see that show. Um, and I'm sure that's amazing. And uh, uh, glamping is, if you like jellyfish, it's you got to get that. It's a no-brainer. Um, and uh, all right, guys, Mike, I'll see you soon at Morse Fest and uh, looking forward yeah. to everything you have. And uh, Roger, hopefully we'll talk again soon, man. Thanks again. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Roy. Appreciate it. Yeah, right, man. Thank both of you. Thank you, guys. Great time. Thank right, you. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye.